Turning there, you'll find that this passage is a unique chapter in the books of First and Second Samuel. The majority of Second Samuel, as you know, is historical narrative. That is, the author takes us back in time, so to speak, and tells us the story of David's kingdom. But as you arrive at chapter 22 in your Bibles, you quickly notice that something is different. 2 Samuel 22 is not like the other passages we've studied. This chapter is a song. It's a psalm of praise that David composed as an act of worship to God. In fact, 2 Samuel 22 matches almost exactly what we find in Psalm 18. Uh, There's a few differences to account for the corporate nature in Psalm 18, but it's almost exactly the same text between the two chapters. So the historical narrative of 2 Samuel pauses here for a moment, and we're given this privilege of a behind-the-scenes look as David worships and praises his God. So let's do that now. Let's give our attention to this very moving psalm of praise from the pen of King David. Please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From His temple, He heard my voice, and my cry came to His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from Him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. 
You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise You, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to Your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that reveal to us the truth of who you are and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the provision that you have given to your people in the Holy Spirit. All, all of you, Father, the triune God, All that you are is devoted to the glorifying of your name and to the building up of your church in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace today, Father, to listen to the Scriptures with ears of faith. Father, grant me grace to speak faithfully and accurately from this chapter. Give your people discernment. God, use this time together as we consider the Scriptures. Use these few moments as a means of doing good to us, Father, that we might bring glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. There is perhaps no other figure in the Old Testament who receives as much attention as King David. David's life is an engaging and even thrilling testimony of how a lowly, overlooked person can rise to do great things for God. Think of all the different experiences the Bible records from David's life. As a young man, David was brave and courageous even to the point of fighting against wild animals to 
spare his sheep. David had a profound grasp of God's character, which enabled him to rush into the battlefield against Goliath and win the victory. David displayed wisdom beyond his years as time and time again he restrained himself from killing King Saul, though David had the chance to do that. David was a leader consistently rallying men to his cause, building this large force of warriors. And on top of all of that, David was creative and wonderfully artistic. He could fight in a battle and he could write a poem just as easily as one doing the other. All of this we hear in David's life. That's just a brief sketch of David's accomplishments, but it's enough to remind us that his was an engaging, even thrilling life. And therefore, it's understandable that so much of the church's attention on King David emphasizes imitation. Imitation. If you grew up going to church, you probably have the same memory as I do, sitting in Sunday school class and hearing all of the lessons from David's life and being told that we should be brave like David was brave. And we should trust God like David trusted God. And at one level, friends, that call to imitate David is not wrong. The call to imitation is not wrong on some level. Whenever we see God's people acting in faith, it's appropriate for us to say, do what they did. Follow their example. That's not wrong. So by all means, as we get close to the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, I pray we've been exhorted from David's life to grow in faith and to increase in boldness and to trust God and to walk uprightly before Him. Those are good lessons to learn. And yet at the same time, if we stop with imitation, then we miss the greatest and most important aspect of King David's life. If David were here among us today, I firmly believe this is what he would tell us. He would not recount the battle with Goliath no matter how much you asked him. He would not tell you stories about the splendor of his royal palace. No, David would spend every minute with us proclaiming the glory and greatness of God. That's what he would do. Now, how do I know this? That's a rather sweeping statement. If you might have noticed, David is not here. So how can I claim to know what David would say? Well, friends, it's because of this passage, 2 Samuel 22. This chapter is David's reflection on his own life. It's his own eulogy, so to speak. Having defeated his enemies and gained the throne... David looks back across the years and what draws his attention is the work of God on his behalf. In fact, notice the opening lines of David's song, verses 2 and 3. Before David can say anything else, he bursts forth in praise to God. It's almost like David cannot contain himself. He can't even slow down really. It's rapid fire worship. Verse 2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, my stronghold, the horn of my salvation, my Savior, God saves me. You hear it, friends? It's time for David to reflect upon his life and what's the first thing he does? Just erupts in praise to God. He just mounts up these descriptions of who God is. You see, that's the message of 2 Samuel 22. It's a declaration that the grand purpose of David's life is not merely imitation, but exaltation. The exaltation of the Lord God. Now, before we consider the details of David's song, we need to pause here at the beginning and think about 
the song as a, as a whole. There's a lot in these 51 verses. And the big picture of the chapter is very helpful when we move to start considering the details. So we're going to take the kind of the 35,000 foot view here for just a minute. There are two different perspectives at work in David's song. He's looking, he's giving us two different points of view. The first is that David's song looks backward. David's song looks backward. You may remember that 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, also began with a song. 2 Samuel is closing with a song. 1 Samuel began with a song. It was the song of Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? Hannah was the barren woman who prayed to the Lord, and the Lord graciously gave her a son, Samuel. And in response, Hannah sang. She received Samuel as a gift, and she sang. And her song was full of hope that God delights to turn the ways of the world upside down. God exalts the lowly, and He brings the proud down into the dust. That was the testimony of of Hannah's life, and it gave her hope. But most importantly, if you remember Hannah's song, it ended with the hope that God would one day raise up His anointed one. She talks about this anointed one, this king, at the end of her song. Israel has no king when she sings that song. So she looks forward to this day when God would raise up His anointed one. And in His grace, God would strengthen that anointed one to rule over all of the earth. That was Hannah's greatest hope. The most important reason for her praise. Well, what do we find here in 2 Samuel 22? We find David singing the same truths that were in Hannah's song. Like Hannah, David rejoices that God exalts the lowly and humbles the proud. Look at verse 28. You save a humble people, and your eyes, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Hannah's testimony is also David's testimony. From the humble place of keeping sheep, God has exalted David to the throne of Israel. You see, David's song looks backward. And with great joy, David says to our sister Hannah, your hopes were true. God has been faithful. He has raised up His anointed one. God has done what He said. At the same time, David's song also looks forward. Notice the last verse, verse 51. Great salvation God brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and to His offspring forever. You may remember that God made a covenant with David. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God made a covenant with David. And in that covenant, God promised steadfast love to David's descendants forever. It was truly an incredible promise that forever... Forever, a son of David would reign on his father's throne. And through that son, God would spread blessing over all of the earth. Well, here in verse 51, David looks forward to that future day. In faith, David sees the covenant fulfilled. He sees a son reigning on the throne, upheld forever by God's steadfast love. Now, does David know that that son's name is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, no, of course not. David doesn't know that. But don't let that obscure what David does see. He sees the covenant fulfilled. 
David sees the faithfulness of God holding firm across the ages. David sees the Messiah reigning. The Anointed One. That's what Anointed One means. It means Messiah. David sees the Messiah reigning and rooted in God's covenant love for His people. So, as we study David's song this morning, we have to study it not only in the context of David's life, that's where we start, but we also have to read it in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm saying that because David is telling us that. Verse 51. This isn't just me trying to squeeze in some gospel later on. This is what David is saying. Verse 51. I'm looking forward to the day when there's an anointed son of David and to his offspring forever. David sees that day by faith. And his song is encouraging us to do the same. So David's song looks backward, but at the same time, David's song also looks forward. Those are the two points of view. And if we keep those points of view in mind, then we're ready to deal with the details of David's praise. There's more here than we can cover, but we'll do our best. As we said at the outset, the ultimate aim of this chapter is the exaltation of God. So it should be no surprise to us that the specifics of David's song are God-centered. David gives us three reasons for his praise, and each one is connected with the character of God. The first is found in verses 5 to 20. David offers praise for the almighty scope of God's power. The almighty scope of God's power. The setting of the song is presented quite clearly in verses 5 to 7. David recalls those times in his life when, when his existence hung in the balance. He was in distress, and that distress was relentless. Notice the language of waves and torrents in verse 5. Like the never-ending crash of the sea, enemies assaulted David year after year. And their goal, David reminds us, was his demise. Notice the repetition of death in verses 5 and 6. It's in every line. Death, destruction, sheol, death. You see, David was not merely in a tight spot. His life was repeatedly at risk. And in such situations, David's only recourse was to pray. Notice verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From His temple, He heard my voice, and my cry came to His ears. Now, it's incredible to think that God would hear David's prayer and answer it. We shouldn't overlook that. It's a massive evidence of grace. But there's also a hint of God's power in verse 7. Did you catch it? Where is God when He hears David's prayer? He's in His temple. That is, He's in the heavenly throne room. You see, David reminds us here in verse 7 of how God's people fight for faith in the face of hardship. We fight with the character of God. We remind ourselves of who God is. We take our eyes off the trials, off the enemies, off the terrifying waves, and we fix our eyes on the Heavenly Father. David has just said his life is threatened every day, and yet he prays. Friends, when you are in the midst of hardship, it takes an incredible amount of faith to pray. Where does the faith come from? It comes from the God to whom you pray, in His temple, reigning over all things. Friends, this is the grand purpose of knowing God through His Word. We don't study the Scriptures to know facts about God. We study the Scriptures to know God. Who He is. So that when the waves relentlessly pour in, we can run to Him and He can receive glory as the God who hears from heaven and saves His people. 
That's David's testimony in verse 7. Relentless enemies are frightening. Don't misunderstand me. David is afraid of them in verses 5 and 6. They're trying to kill him. They're frightening. But they are no match for the God who reigns in heaven with unrivaled power. And indeed, that's what David goes on to describe in verses 8 to 16. With vivid language, David describes the arrival of God. And God's arrival is awesome. David envisions God descending from heaven, riding on a storm. Thunder, verse 14, booms as as God speaks. And lightning, verse 15, flashes forth like arrows from God's bow. Nothing can stand against this powerful God. The ground quakes, verse 8, and the seas split apart to reveal the earth's foundations, verse 16. Don't let the imagery distract you, friends. Yes, uh, David is speaking metaphorically, but that's the point. The Lord's power has been so magnificent in David's life that he doesn't have regular words. He has to resort to imagery. He has to resort to poetry to adequately display the glory of God. It wouldn't be enough to say, you know, God is really powerful. It would be silly to simply say, the Lord is mighty. No, sometimes it takes poetry, it takes metaphor, it takes holy imagination to communicate the awesome reality of God. The Lord rides on the storm, David says. He rips the heavens apart and He descends on a chariot driven by flaming cherubim. He slings arrows of lightning from a bow and awful brightness proclaims His arrival. This is the God whom David sees. This is the God in whom David trusts. And yet, what does this awesome God do on His arrival? Amazingly, He rescues David. Notice verse 17. Keep all of the imagery in your mind from 8 to 16. Then look at verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. What? Verse 18. God rescued me, for they were too mighty for me. Verse 20. He brought me out into a broad place. This is incredible grace, friends. David is not crushed by this storm-riding God who controls thunder and lightning. David is saved by this God. God has ripped the heavens apart and descended in His flaming chariot to save David's life. All of the Lord's unspeakable power is unleashed on David's behalf and for David's good. Brothers and sisters, we may not share the specifics of David's testimony, but we should share his confidence in this great God. This rich, vivid description of God's power is meant to press home upon your heart this morning that the Lord is mighty to save. That the Lord is a strong tower and a fortress and a refuge for those who trust Him. Listen, I could stand up here this morning and give you a lecture on the divine attribute of omnipotence. That's what's in this passage. I could give you a lecture on the divine attribute of omnipotence. We could talk in very technical terms about the extent of God's power and the ways in which His power is manifested through divine decree and through meticulous providence. And that discussion would be helpful on some level. But you know what? It probably wouldn't be memorable probably wouldn't be memorable. It probably wouldn't stick with you the next time you were hemmed in on all sides by distress. David's song, however, is memorable. 
David's song sticks with you when the next series of waves begins to crash in. When the torrents of opposition rise, you remember this description of God. How powerful is the Lord God? Mighty enough to shake the earth's foundations. How awesome are His ways? Glorious enough to use the creation to do His bidding. And most important of all, how does God use this awesome power for the good of His people? He rips apart the heavens to rescue those who save, who trust Him. He uses His power for the good of His people. David delights here in this almighty scope of God's power. And while we may not share the specifics of his testimony, we can certainly share his confidence. For this is our God as well as David's. The second reason for praise comes in verses 21-31. to David offers praise for the faithful testimony of God's people. The faithful testimony of God's people. Some of you have probably been waiting for me to talk about these verses since I read them. This is undoubtedly the most difficult section of the song to understand. I mean, I'm sure, again, some of you were puzzled when we read verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, God has rewarded me. That sounds rather man-centered, not God-centered, doesn't it? And I'm sure that a few of us were thinking of Bathsheba when we read verse 23, For all of His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. Really? I mean, from what I remember, it sure seems like you turned aside on the palace rooftop, David. So what are we supposed to make of these verses? What is David saying here? Well, there are two points to keep in mind. One is a clarification and the other is a comparison. First off, the clarification. At no point in these verses is David making a claim to sinless perfection. Let me say that again. At no point in these verses is David making a claim to sinless perfection. That's not the sense of his language. Take, for example, the word blameless in verse 24. You see that word blameless? The idea there, if you look at the other places in which it's used in the Old Testament, the idea is not perfection in every particular, but integrity in the overall direction of one's life. Not perfection in every particular, but integrity in the overall direction of one's life. In other words, David claims that he has not been hypocritical before God. He has not been double-minded. He's not been wishy-washy. Even when he sinned, David confessed and repented and turned again to the Lord. You see, at no point is David making a claim to perfection. He hasn't forgotten the rooftop with Bathsheba. And at the same time, we shouldn't forget the heartfelt expression of brokenness that followed David's sin. So, if you look at verses 21 to 25, that's the hardest stanza. If you look at 21 to 25 with the idea of integrity rather than perfection, then you can see more accurately what David is claiming. He is saying accurately that his life has been characterized by wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Wholehearted devotion to God. David has held fast to the Lord. And the Lord, in turn, has shown David faithfulness as well. Now, has David fallen? Yes. And in spectacular ways. But even when David fell into sin, what did he do? He returned to the Lord again and again and again. 
Repentance is the normal aspect of the Christian life. Repentance is a normal feature of relating to God. And that's what David is saying here. Not that he's been perfect. That's the clarification. Not that he's been perfect, but that he has integrity and wholeness and overall faithfulness to the Lord God. The second thing that we should note is a comparison between David and Saul. So we're just trying to clarify David's language. Now you want to compare David's life to Saul's. This actually illustrates David's point very well. Notice again verse 22. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. It's that last line that should get our attention. In some sense, friends, the worst act of wickedness is to depart from God. The worst act of wickedness is to know God's ways a little for a time and then to spurn Him as not being worthy of your trust. By God's grace, that's something that David never did. He fell into sin, but he returned. That's not something that David has ever done. But sadly, that's exactly what Saul did, isn't it? Saul turned from God in disobedience, even though Saul knew something of the power of God. Saul turned from God. And even though God patiently pursued Saul, Saul wanted nothing to do with the Lord. For Saul, repentance wasn't worth it. Just wasn't worth it. In fact, do you remember where Saul is at the end of his life, the night before he dies? Do you remember? 1 Samuel chapter 30. He's in the house of a witch, a sorcerer, consulting the dead rather than consulting God. Friends, if that doesn't show you where Saul's heart is at the end of his life, I don't know what else would. And that's different from David. You see the difference between the two men? One persevered in the faith, while the other spurned God and wickedly departed from the Lord. You see, that's what David is getting at in verses 21 to 31. Unlike Saul, who turned away, David has remained faithful to God. And what does God do for those who trust Him? He saves them. He rewards them to use David's language by protecting them. In fact, that's what David says, verses 26 to 28. God has been faithful to David. What's the result of David's faithful testimony? Well, it highlights the faithfulness of God. Notice the last line of verse 31. This captures the section quite well. Last line, verse 31. God is a shield. For who? For all who take refuge in Him. You see, friends, this is why Scripture places such a high value on faith on trusting in God. It's because our, our testimony of faith in God serves to magnify God's faithfulness to save those who trust Him. That's why the Bible again and again exhorts God's people to trust the Lord because it magnifies the faithfulness of God. Faith is not a work we do in order to earn God's protection. And faith is not a prerequisite that merits us salvation. Let's be clear, that's not what David is saying. No, faith is like a mirror. A mirror's value lies in the fact that it reflects something greater than itself. Faith is like a mirror that reflects the faithfulness of God. So when I put my trust in the triune God, I'm saying to the world, this God is faithful. 
And then when He delivers me time and time and again, my testimony of faith is saying to the world, this God is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy of your faith. So whenever you see a Christian holding fast to the Lord in faith, that moment is a reason for praise. Let me say it again. Whenever you see a Christian holding fast to God, that moment is a reason for praise. And that includes our own lives, brothers and sisters. That's the takeaway here from David. Our faithful testimony is important. It's far more important than what we typically think, but maybe not for the reasons that we think. Our faithful testimony is not about us. It's about magnifying the faithfulness of God. And therefore, we should be encouraged that daily perseverance in trusting Christ is far more important and far more significant than we tend to think. God wants His people to trust Him. And He wants us to trust Him day after day after day after normal day because that's how He gets the glory. That's how He sustains His people. The faithful testimony of God's people, especially in hardship, says to the world, this God is worthy to be trusted. This God is worthy of your faith. That's the second reason for David's praise. The third comes in verses 32-49. to David offers praise for the perfect sufficiency of God's provision. The perfect sufficiency of God's provision. Beginning in verse 32, David changes course a bit and he begins to describe the victories he has achieved over his enemies. And make no mistakes, friends, uh, David intends for the note of triumph to ring out from this portion of his song. He wants you to hear him saying, he wins. Notice verse 38, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. Or look at verse 43, I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. It's not hard to hear David's emphasis, is it? He has utterly decimated those who opposed him. And those victories get the emphasis in this song. And so as you read it, you might be thinking, man, David is really full of himself. This sounds boastful or even arrogant at points. But that's actually not the case at all. David sings of these victories not to make much of himself, but to make much of God, who has given him the provision to win these victories. In fact, from start to finish, in verses 32 to 49, in start, from start to finish, David joyfully proclaims the sufficiency of God's provision. Notice with me how it plays out. First off, David's security owes to God's work on his behalf. Verse 34, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. David's situation was often precarious and yet he never fell. Why did he never fall? Because God enabled him to stand. David's security comes from God. David's strength and skill also come from God. Verse 35, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. David won many mighty victories. He was powerful. He fought with ferocity at times. How did he do that? Because his strength and his skill came from God. God. David's salvation also owes to God. Verse 36, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness 
made me great. Here, salvation refers to protection. Time after time, David was protected from harm, and he attributes that solely to God, who like a shield guarded him. David's salvation owes to God. And finally, David's success is due to God. Verse 37, you gave me a wide place for my, for my steps under my feet, and my feet did not slip. To put it simply, why did David win all of those battles? Because God put him on solid ground where he could fight. You see the pattern, friends? Security, strength, skill, salvation, success. All of it has been provided to David by God. And if there were any doubt as to David's point, he tells you in verse 40, For you equipped me. Who's the you? It's God. For you, God, equipped me with strength for the battle. You made me rise. You made those who rise against me sink under me. So it's true, David is boasting in these verses. He is boasting. But he's not boasting in himself. David's boast is in the Lord. In his kindness, God has not only raised up a king for his people, but God has also equipped that king with everything necessary to defeat God's enemies and save God's people. Friends, we shouldn't read this portion of David's song, we shouldn't read any of it, but especially not this portion of David's song, without thinking ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's good to reflect on God's provision in David's life, and yes, it's appropriate for us to see how God provides for us as well. But as Christians, the great connection from David to us is not that we will succeed like David. It's not that we will have strength and skill like David. No, the great connection from David to you is the Lord Jesus Christ. What David experienced in part, the Lord Jesus has experienced in full. At every step of His ministry, the Father perfectly provided for the ministry of His Son. John 16.15, Jesus says, All that the Father has is Mine. All of it. John 5.26, Jesus proclaims, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. In His ministry, the Lord Jesus experienced the perfect sufficiency of God's provision. And through that perfect sufficiency, what has the Lord Jesus done? He has beat the enemies of God's people fine as the dust and trampled them under His feet in the street. That's what the cross is, friends. It's victory for Jesus. Looks like defeat on the front end, but it's victory. Christ has defeated God's enemies at the cross, so even death itself is subject to Christ. And the Lord Jesus has once for all saved God's people to the uttermost. Waves of death will never overwhelm the people of God. And torrents of destruction will never crush those who belong to Christ. And therefore, in our distress, we can call upon God. We can do verse 7, because there in the heavenly throne room, seated at the Father's right hand, is King Jesus, reigning in fulfillment of God's promise to David. Brothers and sisters, this chapter is not ultimately telling you to imitate the life of David. This chapter is ultimately calling you to exult in David's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, there's no more fitting conclusion than verse 51. I want you to hear it again and rejoice to know that from Hannah 
to David, to the Lord Jesus, God has been faithful to His Word. Verse 51, great salvation God brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed and to David and to His offspring forever. Amen. Let's pray.